Welcome to Ex Libris On Air and the stories behind the stories of today's literature and their authors. Greetings from Ex Libris On Air. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book title is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. And joining me from Alaska in the United States of America is author Mr. Frankie Princeton. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is an account of your family and family history that goes back a number of years, back, uh, I think, to the 50s, if I, uh, I am understanding the total overview picture. You have written a book that is uh, startling to read. It's, it's almost like looking into someone's personal diary. Did you intend it to be so personal in the way that you uh, have approached this, this writing? Uh, yes, I did. And what was the reason for that? What does the book encompass? Um, I, I really wanted to help uh, other people out there. I, I wanted it to be like a story. I didn't want it to be like a, um, um, to where people were reading a professional doctor's book. I wanted it to be like a story so that they could fully understand all the content and all the uh, things that went into uh, helping my, my mother through those crises in her life. Yeah, your mother had some serious issues that go back probably to her, her early childhood. I don't know how much you uh, you delved into that, but there were some, some instances uh, that are mentioned in the book. All of the personal instance, instances, uh, you, you mentioned uh, suicides and deaths and other things that took, back, that, that took place in your, your distant family history. Were those all factual, or were there some of them just kind of uh, uh, an expansion of, uh, of the difficulties your mama had? Um, they were all factual. The, the only thing that was um, probably ad-libbed, basically, was um, just trying to come up with a basis for um, how it happened. The actual events did happen. Um, with my with my mother's brother, we weren't sure. Right. But I wanted to add that in because um, she talked about her brother quite often, and she only seemed like she only talked to me about her brother. You had other siblings. How many siblings in the family? Um, four. Four siblings, and you total, uh, total of five. Total of five, five siblings. Yeah. You you have uh, some very difficult. Um, scenes in your account of of your family life and your mom's in specific, you have written this book ideally to to uh, introduce and share the journey of someone who has mental illness. Is that a, a good way to to describe your book? Yes, it is. And you mentioned and used the term on the edge of lunacy. You have also outlined, which I thought was very helpful as a reader. Drug uh, introduction to your family, when I say drug introduction, it's uh, prescription meds that were part of the family uh, history. Those were a contributing factor to some of the problems your family encountered. Is that also a correct observation? I I believe so, um, because there wasn't a clear understanding of my mom's condition. Um, Even as, you know, years pass, um, she was constantly changing different types of medications, and I think that kind of hindered her um, health as well. She also had some injuries in life, and meds were prescribed at that point. Those, do you feel those also led to 
maybe dependency and and other issues that contributed to the mental health of your mom? Absolutely, absolutely. And what would you suggest to someone who is listening or will read your book? What is the the message that you want to get to them? That um, mental illness is nothing to be afraid of, um, whether it's a family member or a friend, even someone that um, you might, you know, know or see on the street. Um, it scares a lot of people, you know, because of this, because of the unknowns, and um, you know, you see someone acting in a certain behavior, you know, it kind of makes you stand back and kind of makes you afraid to want to help them, and you should use caution. There's no doubt about it. But um, these people do need help, and uh, being afraid and not wanting to help, I think, is uh, is the bad thing. Because my mom, I don't think she was fully uh, understood, and I don't. And part of it is her fault. Uh, well, I wouldn't say her fault, but I, it was part of her deficiency. She wasn't able to convey what she really was going through in her mind. You know, even in her later years, uh, the things that she was doing, she they seemed normal to her. They were very abnormal to me and my siblings and the rest of the family. But uh, I just don't want I want people to not be afraid. You know, even in church, church members would be afraid of my mother. And uh, that kind of took me back and made me not upset, but wonder why they would feel that way. You know, she seemed normal to me. Yes. Even though she had a mental illness, it seemed normal to me because I'd always helped her as much as I possibly could. But other people seemed like they didn't want to try to understand. There were times, though, your mom appeared to be just like any other individual in the public marketplace. It was really behind closed doors that most of this came out. Is that also accurate? Yeah, that's pretty accurate. You know, as long as she took her medication, you know, my dad... Um, explained that to me at a very young age. He told me that the doctors told her if she took medicine, she would be fine for the rest of her life. She would have to take medicine for the rest of her life. But and it kinda and it made her normal. But you know, as the body gets older and the mind gets older and, you know, the body changes, you know, I think the medication has to change. And I don't think the um, the doctors um helped her in that regard to making sure that as she got older, the medication kept up with her her body changes. Yeah, there there were a lot of medications that were thrown out and still happen today. I've I have a brother in law who's a dependent that lives with me, and you know my wife who is very diligent about looking at the outcome, the um, the results, the the other things that happen from taking meds, is very cautious about things that she takes into her body and and probably has uh, saved him from serious illness in other other regards the general consensus though back in the 60s and 70s and even you know even today is that doctors know everything and this is not accurate is it it's not accurate you know they take an educated guess you know from my experience i i'm, I'm not a doctor i um, don't know all the doctor lingo and everything that they that they do. But I one thing I do know is that I experienced that, and I experienced my mom's condition for over forty years. And there's a lot of things I do know that helped her, 
more than the medication and more than the, what the doctors had to do. And um, I did whatever it took to try to help her as much as I could. And, you know, having these different kind of medications out there and you mix them, you know, something's bound to go wrong, bound to mess, mess up something uh, neurologically. Absolutely. I, I can I can attest to that in my own family. My mother, who had uh, some back surgery, you know, s- several years before her death, was put on opioids and had opioid dependent. You couldn't you could not uh, rationalize with her and, and let her know that this was harming her body. She did live, fortunately, to to 91 years of age. But the quality of life was diminished immensely because of her dependency. You have also done a a service of outlining Ritalin, and this is a very highly uh, prescribed medication for many reasons. What is the history of Ritalin? Uh, You know, I'm not really really sure, but when it came to my mother, um, it was probably one of the first medications that uh, they prescribed to her from my dad's account. And it was highly used back in the um, in the in the early fifties, well, sixties, I believe. Yes, it, it's uh, also a, a methamphetamine, is it not? I mean, it it actually stimulates the the body and and the mind to uh, speed up somewhat. Yeah, it's 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 it is it affects um, you know chemicals in the brain and nerves that contribute to. Um, you know, impulse and control. In the years of your dealing with your mom's illness, how long did it take you as an individual uh, from, I know, uh, growing up as a child, you probably thought things that were going on were fairly typical with most families. Uh, how long was it before you came to the realization your mom had some illness issues that uh, that perhaps uh, were beyond the norm? Uh, it didn't really... I didn't really recognize that there was a serious issue until in my, um, I think, teenage years. It was in my, you know, when I was eight, eight or nine is when I took on the role to try to help her as best I could, even without not understanding what was going on. But I knew something wasn't right. I don't, I'm most sure that my dad didn't tell me. He didn't say that something was wrong. But I could detect something was wrong with my mother, and um, and I took on that role to try to help her as much as I could. Now, in my 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 mid-teens was when um, I really started to wonder what was wrong, what happened, and how did it happen? And it was um, it was quite quite I was quite taken back because none of the family, my mom's family, found the strength to tell us what happened to her. We had to kind of find out on our own. Uh, uh, siblings had to find out on our own what happened, what 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 started this whole thing uh, that got her so messed up in her mind. Your story takes place all over, in, I wouldn't say all over, but uh, throughout the United States. Your family moved several times. You are currently in Alaska, but uh, your family story deals with the South, uh, Louisiana, and other yeah, places, California. Louisiana. Louisiana specifically, what is there in your story that you think will maybe grab the attention of the reader the most? Is there one incident that really stood out in your mind? And then as a follow-up to that, how did you remember the details of what took place in your family? 
Um, the answer to your first question is, um, you know, there are just a number of things in the in the book I think would grab people's attention to make them put them in awe of how stuff like this could happen, especially at me as a, at a young age. You know, we didn't get any help. I don't recall ever being asked if we need some help, and, and I think it's important. This is one of the reasons why I wrote the book because I think it's very important that there are families that deal with it. You got to get these the children. You got to get the family members some help. You know, they got to be able to sort through it. You can't do it on your own. The only thing that ha- helped us was that we had other siblings that we could talk about it. But it wasn't enough that we just talked about. It. We needed someone else. We didn't know that we needed someone else. You know, wish wish that would have happened. And there are a number of community service organizations that now can help that perhaps weren't available back when you were growing up. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that that you have now that where people can get help. But, but you know, let me go back to what I said earlier that you know mental illness scares people. Um, and the other part about that is when you when people talk about getting help, you know they talk about a psychiatrist talk about, um, uh, you know, going before a shrink. And, you know, that's all been taboo for years. And that's one of the reasons I think why a lot of people don't get help because, you know, as a kid, you know, we used to joke about it. You know, kids used to joke with me, you know, oh, you're going to see, you know, people, you, you going to see a shrink and, you know, and you shun away from that when, when you hear that, oh, you must be crazy. And I hate that word crazy. I really mm-hmm. do. And I've heard it had a lot of people use that towards my mother. And they don't know. They really don't know that there is a serious mental condition here where she needs help. And she's not crazy. She she lacks a deficiency. She lacks things that normal people have. It's a courageous book and filled with many insights into your family dynamic and your personal life and the life of your siblings. It uh, covers about about 50 years, I'm guessing, of of time in your family uh, with many incidences outlined. It's 157 pages, and it's a fascinating read. Again, your desire is to help people who might be facing similar instances uh, as are outlined in your book. Thank you for sharing your family story and your personal history. The title of the book, again, is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. My guest and author, Mr. Frankie Princeton. Sir, there are many listeners who will want to get a copy of this. Uh, How do they do so? They can go to um, exlibris.com and uh, they can pick up the book there. And um, I, I do have a website, and it's at Barnes & Nobles. You can find it on Barnes & Nobles and um, at Amazon.com as well. Right. Well, they can do a search under your name, under the author's name, uh, Frankie Princeton, and probably locate your website. That would be a great way to keep in touch and perhaps share some stories that uh, you may want to address personally, or are you doing blogs out there or any writings on your website? Uh, that's in the process at this time. At this time. Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing your story. This interview will be around for a number of years, so hopefully it'll have a positive impact on not only the listeners, but on those who read your book. And best of luck in the future. Hopefully this will uh, will impact our world. Thank you for sharing your story. And, Jake, can I say one other thing? Absolutely. Yeah, the, um, the, the one question you asked, and how did I remember so much stuff? Yes. Um, I, 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 
I have to thank God that I, I have a, I appear to have a really good memory. And I remembered a lot of this stuff when, from a very young age. And over the years, you know, I would jot stuff down. I'd write something here, write something there. But I never thought about writing the book and, and until after my four years after my mom died, I got to thinking, you know, I, I'm remembering all this stuff from when when it happened when I was a kid. And I like to write this stuff down. And that's that's how I, you know, kind of was inspired to write the book because I want to help folks. And, and, the, and my, my website is uh, me, and that's the website where you can look at the, uh, the book and order the book as well. Fantastic. Well, again, thank you for sharing your story and helping others uh, through the story and the, uh, the family history that you have shared. Are you thinking about doing a follow-up or perhaps another book, or was this your primary goal in your writing career? Uh, this is my primary goal. I, I am currently working on another book, uh, but nothing. Uh, it's totally in the other side of the spectrum uh, when it came to this. This is a one-time thing, and um, I, I really cherish this because it has something to do with my mother, and you know, I love her so much. And just wanted to, you know, wanted to make her proud, but I want to want to help people. All right, listeners, again, the title of the, book, title of the book is Extraordinary Happenings on the Edge of Lunacy. My guest, Mr. Frankie Princeton. Thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you very much. It was my honor to speak with you, and uh, God bless you. Ple- pleasure to visit with you as well. For Ex Libris On Air, this is Jay Douglas Barker. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Have you heard? The pages of American Patchwork and Quilting magazine come to life on our new weekly online radio show, American Patchwork and Quilting. Join Pat Sloan, our blogging and quilt designer host, as she talks about the latest trends, ideas, and inspirations. Her guests include quilt pattern designers, authors, quilt shop owners, and our editors. All quilters, just like you. Call in with your questions. Get quilting tips from industry experts. Learn about free patterns. Hear behind-the-scenes stories from our magazines, American Patchwork and Quilting, Quilt Sampler, and Quilts and More. Get the scoop on free stuff and find out more about the best independent quilt shops in North America. To listen to a live show, tune in Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Just log on to allpeoplequilt.com radio. To hear past shows, go to iTunes and search for American Patchwork and Quilting Radio. We hope you'll join us because we know that quilting changes everything. Welcome back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, Tenuous Tendrils, and the author, Tom Corbett. He joins us now on Ex Libris On Air. Hello, Tom. Uh, Hello, glad to be here. Well, this is quite a journey you're going to take us on, a journey of reflections, a a journey to take us back into the 60s in many ways with an individual who 
basically uh, went to Canada because of the Vietnam War. That was the bottom line, and of course, a lot of consequences because of that. Exactly. Uh, it's, uh, I suppose at its core, it's a story about trying to find one's moral compass or principles to live one's life by, and this is a story of a young man uh, from an Irish working class background who had uh, a, a and it was also a good athlete. He had a life before him. But he uh, was swept up in the anti-Vietnam War fever of the 1960s and uh, found himself outraged and protesting and becoming involved with a group uh, that he formed a bond with, but was, which was going off in a direction he became uncomfortable uh, staying with. And he had to make a choice. Life is about choices, and he had to make a choice. And uh, he probably he took what he later thought was the coward's way out, and he fled to Canada. Uh, and then really eventually, after some struggles, formed a, a new life as a professor at the University of British Columbia. And the whole story takes place one uh, over the course of one week when uh, he is retiring as a professor. And through... During that week, a number of the people in his past life uh, find their way to this event. Now, when you say his past life, when when he lived in the United States? Yes, his past life in the United States. So uh, the sister whom he loved very much, uh, you know, some of the people he protested with, uh, and, uh, peop- and, uh, and other people that he met in Canada but could never form strong attachments to. Somehow that those early experiences took something out of him. And so he had really trouble uh, relating in a very personal way with, with people. And they all come together, most of them come together during this uh, one week. And it becomes a kind of a psychological exploration of uh, how he reconnects or not and finds redemption or not uh, during this sort of cauldron of personal reflection and interchange. And uh, so, in a way, it's, it's, you know, it's part, of, part love story, but it's part a philosophical treatise, and it's part of a history lesson, and it really gets at really core issues of, you know, what did people think about and feel, and, you know, as they made basic decisions about what is patriotism, what is commitment, what does sacrifice mean, what are these basic dimensions of, of human life, what do they really mean? And so uh, a lot is packed into that, that, that one week. A lot of inner turmoil, obviously, and trying to, as you put it, make sense out of competing claims upon their loyalty. So that is... Uh, I mean, it is what it is, and many people went through it and are still going through it. It was. For those in the audience who uh, are too young (laughs) to have experienced it, uh, it was a cauldron of conflict uh, back then, and and people were torn apart, you know, uh, uh, in terms of, what does it mean to be a patriot? Uh, you know, what, it, what does it mean to take a stand for uh, on, on, based upon one's principles? How do you figure it, things out? And that's what a lot of the characters do uh, is is sorting out were they right or wrong? Did they take the correct stand or not? And how do you know whether, whether when you make these decisions, 
with an unformed mind when you're in your early 20s and in college years, uh, how do you know you are not, you know, you're uh, taking the right road or the wrong path? And these are not easy things to sort out. So uh, I, I sort and I, I play with those feelings and concepts and that angst and, and those core sort of dilemmas, conundrums uh, through the characters in this, uh, in this novel. And I can imagine being raised in a uh, in an American Irish family, a lot of deep roots about being an American and the responsibilities of being an American. That part of the book obviously comes out of my own experiences, uh, having grown up in an ethnic, well, Irish Polish, but it was sort of dominated by the, an, an Irish neighborhood. Uh, family and culture and there was a culture that was very rigid that was right and wrong so what the uh, protagonist in the book struggled with as a young man was breaking away from those rigidities that came partly from the ethnic culture partly from the church partly from the uh, anti-communist view uh, that, that dominated that decade it just evolved out of the McCarthy period of great paranoia, uh, so it was uh, it, you know. So these were it, it, these were times that certainly tried men's souls, <laughs> and uh, it uh, it certainly did our protagonist and the others who were around him. So was he? Well, how was he treated by his mom and dad, his sister, when he decided to leave? Uh, even before he left fact that he did not go to Notre Dame on a football scholarship, and he went to a non-Catholic school, and he gave up football, and he became involved. Uh, these were these were uh, just disastrous uh, in the eyes of his, of his family, and there's an historical sort of back background uh, to his mother, who actually whose family grew up in in in, in, in part of Russia and was involved in the. You know the Bolshevik Revolution. At least the family was they suffered greatly. So they, they bring these things forward, and of course, uh, his, his Irish father was heavy into the the Irish troubles, and he had his own commitment, but he couldn't understand his son. I mean, he, uh, it was it was a breakdown totally in communication. His sister adored him, but he left, and she and she went on to a very successful life, but. But was but, but felt betrayed, and, and she had trouble uh, forming relationships. So there's a lot of intertwined, uh, uh, obviously, and in, 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 you know, sort of uh, almost a labyrinth of relationships and struggles that that uh, he faced as a person, and, the, and that all the all the characters faced as they tried to relate to one another and, and what they were struggling with. So do these characters who show up for his retirement, uh, goes, he goes through a week, uh, uh, you describing what he's going through, do these characters come friendly or still come challenging him? Uh, his sister arrives challenging him. Uh, and that's if there's a, a love story aspect to this. There are some conventional sub uh, conventional love themes in, in the book, 
But I think a dominant sort of love story is he uh, trying to reconnect with his sister after after four decades where they they were not enemies but were very distant and, and interacted sparsely. Um, it was like them, them trying to find one another again. Uh, his, co- his colleagues from college, the, the, the couple, the three that, sh- that show up, actually had forgiven him a long time ago, but he kept the guilt within him. So the issue was uh, getting through the kinds of things he had stored in his head uh, as being failures on his part. Uh, you know, he left them, he left them in the lurch. A couple of them wound up in prison for what they were doing. And he felt this enormous amount of, of, of guilt for that. And actually, one of his, one of the kids he was very fond of and very close to in his anti-war days in the '60s, actually killed, was killed uh, in a tragic accident related to the anti-war uh, demonstrations. So, um, and if you're Irish, I mean, the, the, this theme is very present in the book. If you're Irish, you walk around with a black cloud over your head and uh, guilt is what you eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So these are, this is something he, he uh, strongly had to deal with. A lot of it was in his own head, not all of it, but some of it was. Uh, and it led to an, uh, an inability on his part to relate to people in a meaningful way. I mean, he was very good, as many Irishmen are, at charm and wit and, and getting through things and impressing people. But that was all on the surface level. What we deal with in this book is what's uh, underneath the surface, underneath that charm and wit uh, that uh, some of us Irishmen (laughs) have in abundance. So do we get to know him through his innermost thoughts as he meets and greets and uh, tries to deal with his past or is it in dialogue? Of how, how do we get to know and, and see this process of redemption? I guess that's what we're headed to, redemption? Yes, uh, that, that's, what, that's where we're headed to. Uh, it's, a, it's a rocky road, uh, and it comes out in internal monologues with flashbacks to, uh, to the 60s and to some of the subsequent period after he left and, went, and first ended up in Toronto uh, and through dialogue uh, as people as some of these characters from his past enter the scene his, his sister was the first one then there are then there are some incisive I think you know uh, dialogue where tensions come out and uh, and the past is revealed so between the flashbacks and the dialogue, the whole story slowly comes together. It's not, you know, it's not apparent at the beginning, uh, uh, and uh, but it, eventually the, the characters become fully formed, and one's understanding of what shaped both the uh, protagonist and I would say the sister becomes almost an equal pr- protagonist in this, and so uh, it's uh, the story kind of is is told. Uh, from the eyes of the two of them uh, because they obviously saw different things uh, and had lost touch with how close they really were. It, it, took them, uh, it took them a while, even in this one week, 
to rediscover that close connection that they had had when they were just children. And uh, uh, and, and I'll leave I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to give right. anything away. Well, this is very different from what you've mostly done all your life, and you've written a lot, and you've been involved uh, with uh, welfare reform legislation, even helped to develop that with President Clinton. So this is quite a change for you. Yes, uh, except for some uh, memoirs of my Peace Corps days, and uh, uh, almost all the books I've done have been more academic and and uh, policy oriented um, some of them written in a very in- endearing style but still m- much more serious uh, but there was always in the back of my mind I, you know when I was a, in college I thought I want to be a writer that kind of thing so a, a dream that many of us had but I decided I really also wanted to eat three meals a day and have a roof over my head so I, <laughs> so I went uh, uh, the way of becoming a policy wonk, an academic, a consultant on policy issues, and it was a great life, no question about it. I, I, like I always tell people, I flew around the country working with the best and the brightest on some of society's most difficult issues. You can't ask for more than that. Uh, but in the back of my head, I always wanted to see if I could write a good, compelling story. And I, in in the dedication, I tell this one little vignette that I ran across my English lit prof in college, and I. Uh, I just said, I blurted out, you know, someday I want to be a writer. And and he didn't laugh at me, but he, he, the one thing he did ask me was, could I, can I, could I tell a good story? And I didn't know that, so I kind of stood mute, as you often do before your college professor. And so here, we, here I am, you know, 50 years later, or 50-some years later, I decided I need an answer to that question. And so this was my first um, fictional work. Tenuous Tendrils, uh, a compelling title for a compelling story, uh, very real. And with, uh, what would you say, uh, uh, when you're done reading, how does the reader feel? I think, you know, uh, that the reader should feel. There may be a, a few disappointments uh, in, the, uh, in the way things turn out, but on balance, I believe that the reader will feel uplifted uh, with a, a sense of warmth towards the characters. Um, and, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it's interesting when you're writing fiction, you may start out with an end in mind, and, some, and one of the ends in mind that I had was quite dark. But as, as the characters evolve and take on a life of their own, they begin to tell the story themselves. You, you're just an instrument, and the characters begin to uh, plot their own way toward the ending that needs to be. We've been listening to Tom Corbett. Uh, Tom, tell us what's the best way to get your book, Tenuous Tendrils. Uh, you can try the public, publisher, exlibris.com, uh, but it's also available at uh, amazon.com and barnesandnoble.com. Uh, just just type in the, the title, and if you type in my name, you'll, besides the Tom Corbett Space Cadet uh, books that come up, <laughs> you should find some of my, some of my other books uh, that, uh, uh, that also can be fascinating reading, particularly Ouch, Now I Remember, which is my memoir of my uh, early years, and that will give you the true story of my 
my uh, wicked path as a Irish working class kid. Well, thank you so much, Tom, for joining us on Ex Libris on Air. Okay, thank you. Ex Libris returns after these short messages. Only once every few years does a show come along that makes you think, makes you care, makes you believe the impossible. A show featuring only the best in writing, acting, and directing. Until that show comes along, we suggest Paranoria, Texas. Thrilled to the adventures of six super-powered nerds on a never-ending quest to take over the world and to complete their collection of She-Hulk comics. Paranoria, Texas, Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central on AstronetRadio.com. Back to Ex Libris. The title of the book, Great Objectives, and the author, Robert Finch. He joins us now on Ex Libris on Air. Hello, Robert. Hello. Great to have you with us, Robert. This is going to be quite a discussion of to discuss the world of ethics and to use knowledge and rationality to find a way in our life that I think we're all searching for happiness. I, you know, and that means a lot of things to, you know, different things to different people. But uh, before we get into that and we start discussing different aspects of Great Objectives, your book, give us a, 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 a kind of a synopsis explanation of what is ethics uh, how do you define ethics well uh, ethics is really um the the, the subject of uh, all of the discussions that we've ever had about how to behave you know what is a, a good way to behave uh and, and particularly as it uh, impacts our uh, effects on other people. So it's a lot about determining how we're going to live our lives. That's correct. Yes. A lot of people. Go ahead. I'm sorry. How should we live? What sort of choices should we make? Um, what sort of habits have we got into? Uh, which of these are good habits and what should we change and uh, uh, so on and so forth. Anything that that um, uh, affects our way of living it really comes under the heading of ethics. Well, before we start uh, getting into some more details, just wanted to give people, uh, listeners, a little bit about you, your background. It is very uh, fascinating. Tell us a little synopsis about your background. Uh, well, uh, I was uh, born in England, and um, I went to college in uh, uh, Imperial College London University. Um, after I got my PhD, I came to this country, and uh, I, I taught at UCLA for a couple of years, and then uh, got a, a position at the University of Houston uh, in mechanical engineering. So. Uh, 
that's a sort of background for me. I, I did a I did a degree in physics, uh, but physics is not that far from mechanical engineering, uh, and uh, my special uh, subject was acoustics. So uh, sound and vibration, things like that. Um, and, and I worked in that area for well over 30 years before I finally retired. You talk about your book, Great Objectives, appealing to independent-minded people. Why so? Well, um, <clears throat> there are uh, a lot of people nowadays who, if, if they have to fill in a survey, and the survey asks, uh, what is your... Um, religious attachment, then there are a lot of people who nowadays answer none, meaning N-O-N-E, that they have no particular religious affiliation. And um, these are the people that I'm particularly um, uh, interested in addressing, you see. Uh, if you don't have any, uh, 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 if you don't have any religious affiliation, where does your ethical thinking come from so we're talking about for lack of a better word for me to share here is we're talking about values in a person is that what ethics are all part of or based on yes uh, your values are probably the first stepping stone in in the search for ethical behavior there are certain sorts of behavior that we um, I reckon on as being um, ethical values and uh, such things as truth and rationalism and uh, uh, objective knowledge, science, civilization, beauty, and things like this uh, are all values that we have come to um, appreciate over the course of our, our human history. And uh, so all of those things um, uh, are, are, are most people would say that their values, their, uh, their behavior is based on values like that. And often people find those uh, in religion. Uh, people grow up in some kind of a religious environment of, of course, uh, all different. Uh, different ways to do that and and yet there are some who don't have much of a religious background but still have some important values that guide their lives this is this is true and uh, uh, as I'm saying there are, there are now more and more people that come into that category you see it's something like um, uh, I think the latest polls is something like 23 percent of the uh, population, uh, say they have no religious affiliation. They have none when it comes to that. And so, where do those people get their uh, values from? Their ethics. That's that's the subject of this book. And uh, what I'm saying here is that uh, one of the ways we can uh, specify our um, uh, our uh, ethics is through the objectives that we have. What is it we want to accomplish in life? And uh, these are um, what are called the great objectives. Uh, John Stuart Mill was a British uh, philosopher of the 
uh, around about 1900, and um, he uh, invented this term or uh, defined this term of great objectives. And so he, he pointed out that uh, a lot of people have got uh, such objectives in mind as um, uh, wealth or power or um, uh, uh, such things to, to guide their uh, thinking. So, um, you know, one of, one of a very common uh, adage is um, health, wealth, and happiness or health, wealth, and wisdom. Uh, you know, we like to uh, pick on three words to specify our aims in life, and a lot of people do that. So those are things that would be called great objectives by uh, John Stuart Mill, and those are the things that we have to talk about. Everyone is searching for happiness. It's some People, you know, people go down different roads to find that, and as you've just pointed out, you know, power, fame, money, or, or being healthy, wealthy, and wise. And of course, this discussion goes all the way back to Aristotle, maybe before. Oh yeah, yeah. Aristotle was one of the first people to um, really uh, elucidate the the um, aim of happiness in life. And uh, he uh, he uh, proclaimed that was the the goal of life. But the the problem with it is that you can't just be happy. You can't just say, "Okay, I want to be happy," and start being happy. It doesn't work out like that. You have to um, have a a way of living. You've got to have all sorts of habits and um, behaviors that you've acquired over the years. And if those are, uh, if that's a good set of uh, things, then you'll you'll be happy. Um, on the other hand, you may have problems. I mean, there was a time, for instance, when people uh, were keeping slaves in, uh, uh, even in this country, and um, that that doesn't really, it's not conducive to happiness, for example. So we change that. It's certainly conducive to wealth, probably, but that doesn't necessarily, as we know, just because you have lots of money doesn't mean you're happy. Yeah, that's right. It might have led to wealth for the slave owners, but of course for the uh, for the people they subjugated, it was uh, it was poverty. So well, we had to find a better way of doing things than that, and and uh, we've been working on that, I think, for a while. As I'm looking at your table of contents for your book, uh, of course, uh, a, a lot of thought-provoking titles here. Of in today's world, so we need to find our way. As you've pointed out, we need to find this rational approach to living, and everyone has to come up with their own plan for living, which to reach this. Uh, sometimes elusive goal of happiness. Sometimes people don't, they really don't know what it means to be happy, right? Uh, I think that's true. Uh, um, you have to, um, you have to really examine your, your life. Aristotle said that the, 
um, unexamined uh, life is not worth living. I said Aristotle, I meant Socrates. Socrates is famous for that uh, uh, statement that the unexamined life is not worth living. Well, you know, I mean, maybe it's uh, that that's a, an overstatement. Uh, it's not true that it's not worth living at all. But if you examine your life, if you go into it and uh, question what you're doing, you can improve. And, and that's the key to, um, to getting a better life, I think. So is happiness and, and having ethics, is that tied to a person's search for truth? Oh, definitely, yeah. I think truth is probably one of the first uh, values that we should be um, uh, looking at. You know, if, if something's untrue, then uh, proceeding on the basis of assuming that it's true when it isn't true—that's uh, that's for certain to to uh, going to lead to trouble eventually. And in your book, a number of your of uh, your titles of the different sections uh, deal with this this word humanism and, and the humanist culture and uh, humanism is is that what we're going through right now and is that helpful or does that hinder man's search for happiness well <clears throat> it's a name for the approach that we take um, what are you going to call somebody who adopts a, uh, a philosophy of uh, having values and examining his or her life periodically to try to improve, um, then uh, we have to make judgments as human beings. And it's, uh, it's a, uh, our human input into these things where the word uh, humanism comes from. And it's, uh, it started um, uh, probably back in the time of the Enlightenment, um, we we think many of the founding fathers of uh, the United States were on their way to being humanists. Many of them called themselves deists. They they couldn't believe that God dictated the minutiae of our living. Um, but so they um, really relied on human judgments. And then. Um, in the uh, the 1900s, uh, the word humanism be became uh, more common, and now, as I say, there are more and more people that are, uh, are looking at things in that direction. So uh, it's a growing number of people who are uh, looking to human uh, judgments from psychology and sociology and... Uh, uh, studies of economics and uh, government and so on that, that are uh, uh, making humanist determinations. Well, we have time. We have time, Robert, for just some closing thoughts if you would like to share with us uh, before we find out the best way to get your book. Well, um, I, I think that it's uh, the, the, the use of... Uh, truth and uh, willingness to learn and the willingness to change if necessary um, to uh, to uh, our 
in our uh, way of living that will make us um, human, better human beings, and can lead us into the future. I like what she said, the willingness to change. Sometimes folks really struggle with that. Yeah. Yes. So what is the best way to get your book, Great Objectives? Well, it's um, on sale through um, a number of booksellers. You can get it through uh, Amazon. Uh, Barnes & Noble can get you one, or there are some other booksellers that are around that uh, uh, will be able to get your copy if you want one. And uh, I, I, Or you can uh, contact uh, Ex Libris directly. Well, thank you so much, Robert. Robert Finch for joining us on Ex Libris On Air. Thank you. Join Steve Jorgensen next week at the same time as he explores the passion and the inspiration behind the works of today's authors. Right here on Ex Libris On Air.